Life is a learning process. I am all of the time met with topics for which I feel wholly ignorant. In other scenarios, I might know the basics of a topic, but definitely not enough to feel like my opinion is thoroughly and sufficiently supported. And the origin of the Miranda warning, the case from which that warning sprung, at least, was one for which I will admit I was completely ignorant until my research and discussions that I've conducted this past week. The warning itself is commonplace enough. We hear it in nearly every police show and crime movie. Especially for those of us intrigued by the true crime world, we can probably even likely recite it by heart. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. Do you understand the rights I have just read to you? With these rights in mind, do you wish to speak with me? The Miranda warning is often also referred to as being read your Miranda rights, as they outline your constitutional Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights to ensure you understand them. If you invoke your Miranda rights, then that means you've either chosen to remain silent or you have requested an attorney, and either way, the interrogation must cease. And these are the results of a Supreme Court decision in 1966 in the Miranda v. Arizona case. What I didn't know was what Ernesto Miranda's crimes actually were and what had landed his case in the Supreme Court. Tomorrow, I'll be posting an interview with George Kolber, writer and producer of the film Miranda's Victim, that airs in select theaters and on video on demand tomorrow, October 6th, 2023. The lack of knowledge I had about the crime, well, I wasn't alone. Kolber made this realization and knew that that was a story that needed to be told. And it is one expertly presented in the film. As a precursor to that interview and to hopefully your own viewing of this very important film, in this week's episode, I wanted to give you some of that historical background information about that crime. This is the crime behind the Miranda warning. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. 
With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Before we begin this episode, I wanted to provide a trigger warning. We will be extensively discussing sexual assault in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. An 18-year-old girl in Phoenix, Arizona, had been working late at the movie theater where she was employed. All went well on her shift that evening, and she caught the bus home like normal. As she was walking home from her stop, a man jumped from his car, grabbed the girl, held a knife to her throat, and drug her into the back seat of his car, where he tied her hands behind her back, tied her ankles together, and demanded that she lie down in the back seat as he drove away. He drove for about 20 minutes away from the city and into the Arizona desert. Here, he finally stopped, climbed into the back seat, and began removing her clothes. She pleaded with him, please don't, and please let me go. Instead, he raped her. After assaulting her, he demanded to be given all the money she had, and he again demanded that she lie down in the back seat. He then proceeded to drive her back to the location from which he had abducted her, mere blocks from her home and safety. As he pulled her into the street, he said, pray for me, and drove off. The girl's name was Trish Weir, or at least that is the pseudonym we have given her, because not at the time of the crime, nor in all the years since, has her name been made public. So from here on out, I will refer to her as Trish. I want you to keep in mind the climate of the early 1960s. This was not a time during which a woman could easily come forward to say that she had been raped because of all of the social stigma associated with premarital sex and purity. To come out about what happened and to take that information to the police was both a bold act and a brave one. But that's precisely what Trish did. Trish was given a polygraph test, but the results were inconclusive. Luckily, the police believed her. Trish was, of course, traumatized by what had happened, and as a result, some of her recollections came out in pieces. Also, as she was a virgin, when initially asked with what the attacker had penetrated her, she was unsure if it had been a finger or his penis. This point would later be brought up in trial in an attempt to discredit her testimony. As for the perpetrator, she remembered small bits of his appearance, but it was dark. He had a knife, and as far as she was likely concerned, and I'm projecting my own opinion here, she likely thought he was taking her somewhere to murder her. She recalled dark hair and glasses. She did remember some details of the car. She remembered that it had either been green or gray and that the interior was a dark color with stripes. 
despite the trauma of what had happened, life continued. However, only a few days after having gone to the police to file a report, Trish and one of her cousins noticed a car slowly creeping the streets in her neighborhood, right by the bus stop from which she had been taken. This time, the two were able to get a partial plate on what the cousin believed to be a 1953 Packard that they were able to share with police. One of those police officers was Captain Carol Cooley. That partial plate was linked to that 53 Packard, just as the cousin had believed it to be, and it belonged to a 29-year-old woman named Twyla Hoffman. Police decided to follow the lead. When they arrived at the home, Ms. Hoffman answered the door, child on her hip. Asked about the vehicle, she stated that it was her car, but that her live-in boyfriend, Ernie Miranda, also drove it. Police asked to speak with Miranda, and when he came to the door, told him that it would be better not to speak about the matter in front of his girlfriend and children, that a better place for the discussion would be the police station. Miranda agreed and went with them. According to an interview with Captain Cooley from as recently as 2022, he recalled the following, quote, On the way, he asked, what's this all about? And we said, I said, let's just wait until we get to the department and we'll tell you all about it, end quote. Ernesto Miranda, called Ernie as a youth and by those closest to him, was 24 years old in 1963 when this case takes place. He was a high school dropout with an eighth grade education, and when taken to the station, police were soon aware of his rather lengthy criminal history. Miranda lost his mother at a young age. He was only five or six, and he didn't get along with his father nor his stepmother. Just after dropping out of school was when Miranda's criminal history began, and after being convicted of burglary, he was sent to reform school. But he was soon arrested again on charges of assault and on charges of attempted rape, and again sent to reform school. After two years, now 17, he was a suspect in an armed robbery case and had charges of being a peeping Tom. At 18, Miranda enlisted in the Army, but was dishonorably discharged after only 15 months for going AWOL and again, peeping. Then he spent time in jail for stealing a car. This was all before moving to Arizona in 1963 and appearing to be just an average guy with a family and a good job at a loading dock. That is, until March 13, 1963, when he was a suspect in the armed robbery of a bank worker. It was on those charges as well that police wanted to question him. Miranda initially proclaimed his innocence, but agreed to be put in a lineup. Miranda was put in a lineup with three other men. He was the only man in the lineup wearing glasses. According to my research, despite being the only one wearing glasses, Trish didn't immediately identify her attacker. You see, trauma can make you doubt, and it can cloud your memory. 
After the lineup process, though, when Captain Carol Cooley came into the room where Miranda was waiting, Miranda asked Cooley how he had done. Cooley told Miranda, not too good, Ernie. According to that 2022 interview with Cooley, quote, he said, well, I guess I better tell you all about it then. I said, yes, I think you should, end quote. What followed was two hours' worth of questioning. Despite the fact that, at the time, it wasn't uncommon for police to literally throw the book at you and give you the third degree, implying rough treatment to get the information that they were after, the officers in this case did nothing of the sort. Instead, Miranda admitted to the officers, two were in the room, what he had done, and the details he provided matched details given to them by Trish in her description of what she had gone through, including that he, quote, grabbed her by the arm and, quote, tied her hands and ankles, end quote. Miranda even specified that he had only been able to penetrate the girl about half an inch and related that she had told him that she was a virgin. At one point, Trish was even brought into the interrogation room to stand before Miranda. One of the officers asked Miranda to look at her and say whether this was the young woman he had raped. Upon glancing at Trish, he stated, that's the girl. The officers asked Miranda that he put his confession in writing and handed him a paper with a typed statement at the top reading, quote, This confession was made with full knowledge of my legal rights. Understanding any statement I make may be used against me, end quote. Miranda proceeded to then write out the details of his oral confession, but this time in his own handwriting. The next day, March 14th, Miranda was charged with failure to register as an ex-convict and sentenced to 10 days in the county jail. Before he was let out, Miranda was additionally charged with robbery, kidnap, and rape. It was then he was appointed an attorney. With that written confession and with testimony, Ernesto Miranda was convicted in an Arizona court and sentenced to 20 to 30 years for his crimes. However, only six months after the conviction, Miranda's attorney appealed to the Arizona Supreme Court. He argued that the confession should be inadmissible because his lawyer posited, was the statement made voluntarily? He also asked whether his client, Miranda, had been, quote, afforded all the safeguards to his rights provided by the Constitution of the United States, end quote. In other words, Miranda's lawyer was asking, was he aware of his right to remain silent? Was he made aware of his right to have legal representation throughout this process? Miranda's lawyers argued no. They argued that, due in part to his education, he was not explicitly aware of his constitutional rights, and that as a result, his confession, obtained without that full understanding, should be inadmissible. The Arizona Supreme Court believed otherwise when they heard the case in April 1965 and upheld Miranda's previous conviction. 
And I feel the need to note here that at the time, Arizona law did not require that police inform suspects of their right to an attorney. It was at this moment that the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, got involved and brought in their own lawyer, John H. Flynn, a constitutional expert, to take over Miranda's case. Flynn took the case to the United States Supreme Court, where it was heard in 1966. When the case was presented to the Supreme Court with Chief Justice Earl Warren presiding, Flynn argued first that Miranda's confession had been coerced, as illustrated in the following statement, quote, Now the critical aspect of the defendant's case, confession, I think is eminently demonstrated when during the trial, the prosecutrix was asked the question concerning penetration, in which she first responded that she was, that she thought it was by finger, under questioning by the prosecuting attorney. Immediately thereafter, she expressed uncertainty as to the manner or method of penetration, and after some prompting, responded to the prosecuting attorney that it had been, in fact, by the male organ. On cross-examination, she again expressed the uncertainty in relation to this penetration, which, of course, is the essential element of the crime of first-degree rape in the state of Arizona, when she did, responded to his questions that she simply was unsure whether it had been by finger or by penis. Now, of course, the defendant's confession neatly corrects this reasonable doubt that otherwise would have been engendered, when in precise terminology he wrote, quote, asked her to lie down, and she did, could not get penis into vagina, got about one half, half written, inch in, end quote. The only thing missing or the only thing that the officers failed to supply in words to this defendant at the time he wrote his confession was in violation of Section 13-611 Arizona Revised Statutes, end quote. My- Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I don't know if... Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Did you know? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. 
Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. After Flynn's argument that Miranda's confession had been coerced, the justices then turned their attention to the wording of the Fifth Amendment, which reads in part that no person, quote, shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, end quote. The justices honed in on the word compelled and where that line should be drawn. Obviously, the use of physical threats or violence could compel self-incrimination, but could it also be considered that one is compelled if one confesses just because they were unaware of their right to remain silent? Miranda's lawyer argues that it was. Again, here is part of Flynn's argument that he made to the court. Justice Stewart, is there any claim in this case that this confession was compelled was involuntary? Flynn, no, Your Honor. Justice Stewart, none at all. Flynn, none at all. Justice White, do you mean if the, that there's no question that he was not compelled to give evidence against himself? Flynn, we have not raised question that he was compelled to give this statement in the sense that anyone forced him to do it by coercion, by threats, by promises, or compulsion of that kind. Justice White, of that kind? Was, he, was it voluntary or wasn't it? Flynn, well, voluntary in the sense that the man at a time without knowledge of his rights. Justice White, do you claim his Fifth Amendment rights were violated? Flynn, I would say his Fifth Amendment right was violated to the extent, Justice White, so he was compelled to do it. That's what the amendment says. Flynn, yes, to the extent that he was, number one, too poor to exercise it, number two, mentally abnormal. Justice White, whatever the fifth said, you say he was compelled to do it. Flynn, I say it was taken from him at a point in time when he absolutely should have been afforded the Sixth Amendment. Justice White, I'm not talking about violating the amendment, namely the term. This provision that he was to violate the amendment is the Fifth Amendment right. He has to be compelled to do it, doesn't he? Flynn, in the sense that your honor is presenting to me the word compelled, you're correct. Justice White, well, I was talking what the Constitution says. Justice Black, he doesn't have to have a gun pointed to his head, does he? Justice White, of course he does. So he was compelled to do it, wasn't he, according to your claim? Flynn, not by gunpoint, as Mr. Justice Black has indicated. He was called upon to surrender a right that he didn't fully realize and appreciate that he had. It was taken from him. Justice White, I'm trying to find out if he claimed his Fifth Amendment rights were being violated, and if they were, he must be compelled. You say compelled to do it under all the circumstances. Flynn, I would say that as a result of lack of knowledge, or for lack of a better term, failure to advise the denial of the right to counsel, staged in a proceeding when he most certainly needed it, that this could in and of itself, and certainly in most police interrogations, constitute compulsion. Now, listeners, before we continue, let me kind of break this down. In essence, we have Miranda who made a confession without 
coercion in the sense of physical threats or violence or promises or anything like that. The details he provided matched what Trish had provided. He had been found guilty in Arizona courts and continuing in the Arizona Supreme Court. His guilt in terms of the crime is not what the Supreme Court were debating. I understand that it's hard to separate the two, and to me it feels icky to think that someone who committed a crime would be the face for individual rights, as he is in the Supreme Court case. What they are trying to debate, however, is, number one, whether Miranda had been coerced into his confession. There was no commentary from the Supreme Court on that. However, the second part of Flynn's claim for his client, Miranda, is that one must not be compelled to incriminate themselves in a crime. And he's trying to argue that because Miranda was unaware of his full rights provided him by the Constitution, that that in and of itself would fit the definition of compulsion. Now, it bears noting, as colleague and friend of mine who teaches classes in U.S. government as well as criminal law and justice, Lauren Vassar, did to me that other decisions in Warren's court included Brown v. Board of Education, in which the justices were unanimous in desegregating public schools, and Gideon v. Wainwright, in which, again, the justices were unanimous in their favor of Gideon and guaranteeing the right to legal counsel. In Miranda v. Arizona, however, the court's final ruling was split in a 5-4 decision. There were many who actually, in the aftermath, wanted Justice Earl Warren impeached because of the decision, launching a campaign complete with billboards and letters flooding in. I'll read you excerpts of two. One postcard read, quote, Because your decision banning confessions, the admitted murderess of her four-year-old is now free to kill again. Are you proud of your misrepresentation of the Constitution? End quote. One letter, penned by a prosecuting attorney, Ralph Barry, reads in part, quote, Insofar as I am concerned, your decision will do nothing but permit rapists, persons molesting minor children, murderers, robbers, and burglars to have an opportunity to escape any punishment for their crimes. I feel certain that the old-time anarchists of 50 years ago would feel that you are helping to achieve their ultimate goals. Law enforcement and the rights of organized society are no longer desirable, apparently, in your opinion. I am happy only that the two judges who have had some experience in law enforcement were on the dissentient side. For the five who were on the majority side, I can only say that I regret this decision and feel sorry for the many unfortunate victims of criminal attacks that will result because of your opinion. End quote. In Warren's majority opinion, he asserts that with any questioning that is initiated after having been taken into custody, called custodial interrogation, meaning that you're not free to leave, must be preceded by being informed of one's rights to remain silent and to an attorney. One further has the right to stop an interrogation at any point, even if some questions have already been answered. 
Warren stated, quote, We hold that when an individual is taken into custody or otherwise deprived of his freedom by the authorities in any significant way and is subjected to questioning, the privilege against self-incrimination is jeopardized, end quote. Several justices, Clark, Harlan, Stewart, and White, in their dissenting opinions, pointed out flaws in the Supreme Court's decision. According to Oya's coverage of the Miranda v. Arizona case, Justice White believed the Fifth Amendment only protects against self-incrimination if compelled to provide it, and it was his belief that custodial interrogation, like Miranda being in the custody of law enforcement at the station while being questioned, was, quote, not inherently coercive, end quote. Justice Harlan said specifically of Miranda, quote, though at first denying his guilt, within a short time, Miranda gave a detailed oral confession and then wrote out in his own hand and signed a brief statement admitting and describing the crime. All this was accomplished in two hours or less without any force, threats, or promises, and without any effective warnings at all. Miranda's oral and written confessions are now held inadmissible under the court's new rules. One is entitled to feel astonished that the Constitution could be read to produce this result. These confessions were obtained during a brief daytime questioning conducted by two officers and unmarked by any of the traditional indicia of coercion. They assured a conviction for a brutal and unsettling crime for which the police had and quite possibly could obtain little evidence other than the victim's identifications, evidence which is frequently unreliable. There was, in some, a legitimate purpose, no perceptible unfairness, and certainly little risk of injustice in the interrogation. Yet the resulting confessions and the responsible course of police practice they represent are to be sacrificed to the court's own fine-spun conception of fairness, which I seriously doubt is shared by many thinking citizens in this country. End quote. But majority rules. So... Because of the Supreme Court's decision, the conviction of Ernesto Miranda was overturned. Ultimately, here is why, according to an article about the case published by 13.org, quote, the court maintained that the defendant's rights against self-incrimination had long been part of Anglo-American law as a means to equalize the vulnerability inherent in being detained. Such a position unchecked can often lead to government abuse. For example, the court cited the continued high incidence of police violence designed to compel confessions from a suspect. This and other forms of intimidation maintain the court, deprive criminal suspects of their basic liberties, and can lead to false confessions. The defendant's right to an attorney is an equally fundamental right because the presence of an attorney in interrogations, according to Chief Justice Warren, enables the defendant under otherwise compelling circumstances to tell his story without fear, effectively, and in a way that eliminates the evils in the interrogation process, end quote. The decision then became memorialized by way of the cards that law enforcement across the country then carried, on which there were written the four main tenets of the Miranda warning. The right to remain silent. 
that if you do not remain silent, anything you say can and will be used against you, the right to an attorney, and that if you cannot afford an attorney, you may have one appointed if you so wish. While the wording isn't necessary to be consistent across states, the warning must be quote-unquote meaningful, implying that the suspect must be able to understand their rights. Since the original conviction was overturned, it meant that Miranda had to be tried again. But this time, his confession and anything Miranda had indicated to law enforcement while in their custody was inadmissible. Since the crime precedes the invention of rape kits, the only thing police had, other than the confession they had obtained from Miranda that they can now no longer use, was Trisha's testimony. As a naive young girl who had been a virgin and was initially unsure of the difference between her attacker inserting a finger or inserting a penis, and because of the comment that she believed the person in the lineup was her assailant, rather than that he absolutely was, Miranda's lawyers tried to tear apart her testimony. Luckily, Trish's attorney found another witness to testify alongside Trish against Miranda. Remember his live-in girlfriend, Twyla Hoffman, the owner of the Packard car? Long since estranged from one another, the arresting officer located her through Miranda's parents. She took the stand to testify that on one of her visits to jail to see Miranda, he confessed to her that he had abducted and raped Trish. That testimony, alongside Trish's testimony, swayed the jury in their decision to again convict Ernesto Miranda, who was again sentenced to 20 to 30 years. Of that sentence, Miranda only served 11 years before being paroled in 1972. When released, it was clear that he saw himself as something of a hero, announcing who he was to everyone, and even autographing Miranda warning cards and then selling his own signature for $1.50 a card. The showmanship ended, though, when on January 31st, 1976, Miranda was stabbed to death in a bar fight in Phoenix, Arizona. Two individuals were detained after the bartender identified the other men involved in the brawl. In a true twist of irony, however, both men were read their Miranda warning, remained silent, and were released. One fled the country, never to be seen again. Call it poetic justice call it karma, call it whatever you like. But because of being read their Miranda warning, Miranda's own murderers invoked their rights. And as a result, no one has ever been charged with his murder. Despite the fact that we all benefit from knowing our constitutional rights, and I in no way believe that it's a bad thing that law enforcement must remind us of them, it is honestly unsettling to believe that Miranda himself might be hailed as a hero of those rights. It feels wrong to attach his name to a means of protection when he violated the rights of so many. The film Miranda's Victim seeks to reverse that connection. 
It literally flips the script to show the truly heroic actions of Trish Weir, willing to oftentimes stand alone to protect other women from the same attacks. It may be Miranda rights that protect against self-incrimination, but it is Trish Weir who was willing to protect the rights of women, the victims of sexual assault, and those far too often silenced. Hers is the story worth remembering. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back, and this week we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details.